0: Good evening, everyone. I jumped the gun there a little bit, but I'm so excited to talk to you this afternoon. I am pre-recording this. It's been a very long day already. We are in the process of moving. I am extremely exhausted it's so irritating to have so much to do and to know that you need to do it and to do like very small things and just feel like you want to die. Um, But that's where I'm at right now. Unfortunately, I'm just trying to make things a little bit easier for Andy. We have our last final meeting with family tonight and then we are getting this show on the road. We are going down to the promised land of Florida starting tomorrow. So I will probably be in the air when I'm supposed to be recording tomorrow. So I might have a pre-recorded. Interview for tomorrow, or I might figure something else out. We'll see what happens. Today, I'm just going to touch on a few different things that came up. I'm probably not going to go for a full hour, but I found a few really interesting things that came across my Twitter today, which is, by the way, what I use for collecting my news. That's why I love the app so much and appreciate everything they're doing over there. And I really re- uh, respect and appreciate what Elon Musk is doing as far as free speech goes. That's a huge deal for me. Like, I think he's entirely correct about His proposition that free speech is the most important thing. I really agree with him entirely on that one. Um, I am seeing some interesting things on Twitter, though, especially today. So we're going to look at this first from Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, who says in her handle that she is an OBGYN. Now, we know that I could easily throw the letters OBGYN in my handle, too, and that would not make me a medical doctor, but... She describes herself as an OBGYN, and here's what she has to say. Dr. Ahmed Malik posted two images of our trans activist friend from Bud Light, and he says simply, is this person a woman? This self-proclaimed OBGYN says OBGYN here, because of course she has to say that, and the answer is yes. Move on and stop spreading hate. Now... I used to use the very simple metric of choosing a female for my OBGYN because I would not go to a mechanic who didn't own a car to put a fine point on it. It doesn't, didn't make sense to me to go to a male OB because I always thought it was kind of weird that a man would go into OBGYN medicine in the first place. Whatever. Hearing this kind of makes me think that I need to just look for a doctor who seriously cares about the medicine itself and who is not ideologically possessed because we know that a lot of these, if you've used the Verdant Labs tool that I showed you guys the other day, really, really neat, verdantlabs.com slash professions, I believe it is. You can go through different professions and see which professions align with which political leaning. Very interesting, very illuminating. Most pilots... For example, are Republican, most flight attendants are uh, Democrat, which should surprise no one because most pilots are male, obviously, despite their best efforts, and most flight attendants are female, and that's fine, that's as should be, but you can see the very clear blue and red divide right through the heart of that profession. This is interesting to me because it seems to me that female doctors going into the future are going to be more suspect. Now, I say this as someone who is expecting a child within the next few months, and I recognize that I need to have female assistance as far as that goes. Really, really will appreciate having the help of doulas, having the help of midwives and other people who know what's going on, especially people who have experienced what I'm going through. Okay. Because childbirth is a fun process that involves a lot of different moving parts that you will know more about if you have personal experience with. Um, and it's, it's, there's a lot of different school of thought around the whole childbirth labor delivery thing. But at the end of the day, You do really kind of need someone who knows what you're going through. That's very, very helpful if you run into difficulty. They can say, I ran into the same thing. Here's what we did and all that other stuff. I would not ever go to a doctor like Dr. Jennifer Lincoln because once you start mixing, somebody put somebody put this in a comment and it was fantastic. I'd never seen it before, but I feel like it should be everywhere. When you mix science with politics, politics always wins or they said if you mix science with politics, you end up with politics. And I'm like, yeah, that's like mixing black and white paint. You're going to end up with dark gray, likely, or mixing some kind of overpowering color with another milder color. Science and these other things that we thought were stable at one point are now subject to politics and it's incredibly disturbing. This is just something to be aware of. I think this would be a great way for a public square to expand their influence, bring in some doctors, have them advertise their practices. But then we also got to figure out the insurance industry and how that's going to work. And you got to figure out pharmacies and drugs and drug development. It's a whole kettle of fish. And the problem is that this stuff runs really, really deep. And it's not just... So somebody made a comment in passing that I I was very dismissive of. And I should have probably unpacked it more thoroughly. Let me see if I can pull it up. Somebody said, these woke companies are failing their shareholders. And I said... These companies are majority owned by these woke companies. These companies are majority stockholders. So when someone says they owe it to their stockholders, this is dumb. They don't owe it to their stockholders. Actually, what they owe to their stockholders is ESG. Because the majority stockholders for a lot of these companies is BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, the three big ones that own like 7% of each one of these companies, just what they need to get the majority shareholder, sharehold, and then they can dictate what the company does, which is fascinating. So this actually is an article I wanted to read. So we can go ahead and open this up now. And then we're going to talk about Bud Light again. Ex-Anheuser-Busch exec reveals how lefty investment firms pressure companies to go woke. And I think this is how you can tell the person who commented that didn't read the article. Woke government that has sent profits spiraling at companies like Anheuser-Busch and Target often begin with lefty investment firms pressuring them to push products their way, an ex-top Anheuser-Busch exec said. During an appearance on Fox News' Jesse Waters' primetime, Anson Ferricks said behind-the-scenes politicking from firms like New York-based BlackRock... Uh huh, and Pennsylvania-based Vanguard spur many of the controversial decisions sparking nationwide boycotts from longtime, more conservative customers, such as the ill-fated Bud Light promotion with transgender influencer whose name shall not be mentioned here. He said BlackRock, Vanguard, and another firm, State Street, that's right, those are the big three, manage about $20 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars in capital and use their clout to promote agenda politics being pushed, then, pushed on them by progressive lawmakers overseeing government pension funds that the companies profit from. There it is. There is the government involvement in what's happening here. This is not the free market doing this. This is the government pressuring... And it's very circuitous. They're not directly pressuring, for example, Target or Anheuser-Busch. They're pressuring the company that owns a majority of the stock that owns, you know, that makes the pensions happen. And they get there by wheedling and using their, their control over how these companies get some kinds of benefits or whatever. One of the things I learned from Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt was that all monopolies are a result of government interference, and this is exactly one of those cases. Now, if you can show me an example of that not being the case, definitely let me know. I'm really interested to know. I know with technology, things might have changed a little bit, but this is one of the cases where government has to be involved to make this monopoly happen. Let's read a little bit more. One of the firms manages California's pension fund, the largest in the country, and California politicians can have a big say in the corporate governance and politicking of the firms they invest so heavily in, he added. That's great too. In California, they recently have mandated those large pension funds that they divest that, that that they divest from things like fossil fuels and oil and gas, and then when Bill de Blasio, former mayor of New York, was there, he did the same thing. Interesting. But they also tell BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard if they're going to manage their money, they have to commit to things like ESG, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and adopt firm-wide commitments that they therefore force onto all of the major companies in corporate America. This is interesting. This is how it's done. And this is kind of a behind-the-scenes sneak peek that I really appreciate him coming out and saying, I wish this news were everywhere for everyone to read. Frerichs added he left his job at the St. Louis-based beer Titan in part because of the way much of the corporate America was acting in terms of defying public sentiment when engaging in politics. Yeah, he sounds like a good person who did the right thing. He pointed to Atlanta, home to Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines, which became outraged after Georgia's legislators passed election integrity laws. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Well, it's kind of a blunt ending on that New York Post article, but good for this guy. I hope that he goes on to find future very gainful employment. He sounds like a wealth of knowledge that we could all really benefit from hearing more from. So hopefully he continues to give this, give this kind of interview and share his expertise with conservative companies that feel a need to push back against this stupid, ridiculous system. Speaking of Bud Light, this article was kind of interesting. I saw the headline and I want to get into the rest of the article here. Bud Light only has a few months to prevent sustained market share loss, warns former Anheuser-Busch sales exec. Bud Light needs to come up with a cogent strategy to win back customers in the next few months, a former executive warned, or its market share losses could become permanent. Well, this is really irritating. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't notice this was subscription only. I just thought I would pass this on to you because it's very, very hopeful, This is a huge deal because one of the things that I think Scott Adams was talking about during the pandemic was that you can't just tell people this is something that we're going to have to do for the rest of time, right? You're not going to be able to sustain people's commitment to a goal like that. Thankfully, in this instance, the end is literally in sight. If we can simply keep the pressure on until it sounds like through the course of the summer, Those losses will be permanent and we will be able to send a message. Hopefully we can continue to do that and it doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. So I'm very optimistic. Keep that in mind. Pass that on to people who are getting discouraged. Let them know that the end is in sight and then we can kind of catch our breath, regroup and either keep it up or find a new target, strong, no pun intended, a new target to turn our attention to because this stuff's really, really, really important. Now, I want to talk about Tim Scott on The View. All this is kind of not really a huge deal. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Tim Scott is a really, he's an interesting candidate for president. I, at the same time, feel like his um, candidacy is not really anything to take seriously. But I appreciate what he's done here. And I do think he would make, for example, a great um, vice president for somebody. Tim Scott clashes with The View hosts after calling out disgusting message about race. Co-host Whoopi Goldberg previously claimed Scott has Clarence Thomas syndrome. Oh my, what an insult. I would not take that as an insult, but I'm sure they would. Senator Tim Scott joined the host of The View on Monday and criticized them over previous comments they made on the program about him being the exception to systemic racism in the U.S., saying it was an offensive, disgusting message to send to young people. Absolutely. Co-host Sonny Hostin asked Scott if he believed in the concept of systemic racism and pressed him on being the exception in overcoming such a system. There are two black people here having this conversation on one, one of the most popular shows in the U.S. because unfortunately, The View is one of the most popular daytime shows in the U.S. That should tell you everything you need to know about the state of our country. Let's hear what Tim Scott had to say. One of the reasons why I'm on the show is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception, not the rule. That's a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today, that the only way to succeed is by being the exception, Scott said. Austin argued that it, is, that it is before Scott disagreed. Cogent argument. The fact of the matter is that we've had an African-American president, African-American vice president. We've had two African-Americans be secretaries of state. In my home city, the police chief is an African-American who's running for mayor. The head of the highway patrol for South Carolina is an African-American. In 1975, there was about 15% unemployment in the African-American community. For the first time in the country, it's under 5%, Scott said. That's right. This is his, this is his state, so he's got the numbers right at his fingertips. Haston said they were all exceptions and that there were 40% homelessness for African Americans who make up 13% of the population. You've asked the question. I watched you on the show and you like people to be de- deferential and respectful, Scott said, which Haston noted was true. Progress in America is measured in generations. My grandfather was born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, where he was on, when he was on a sidewalk, a white person was coming. He had to step off and not make eye contact. The man believed then, with some doubt now, in the goodness of America because he believed that faith in God, faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for kids would unleash opportunities in ways that you cannot imagine, Scott continued. Good for him. So here's another black lady, Whoopi Goldberg, here was Sonny Hostin, arguing with Tom Tim Scott about how they're all apparently exceptions to this rule. Wild. So what I'm suggesting is that yesterday's exception is today's rule, he added. At a later point in another segment, Goldberg walked over and put her arm around Austin as Scott addressed both their questions. Goldberg had asked Scott to speak about his party more, about the issues Republicans have with race, and Austin was puzzled when Scott said Republicans had done a tremendous job on race issues. It's not a Republican or Democrat said Scott, both sides of the aisle can do a better job on the issue of race. I completely agree. Scott touted the diversity of his own Senate staff and also his work on tax reform that he said benefited people like his own mother. Before his appearance on Monday's show, co-hosts Goldberg, Hostin, and Joy Behar, who was not present for Scott's appearance on the show, have all similarly said that Scott doesn't get systemic racism and compared him to African-American, I hate this, they make me have the ads on, Compared him to African-American Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Good for him. Goldberg had said Scott had Clarence Thomas syndrome after his announcement to run for president. One of the issues is that with Tim Scott is that he seems to think because I made it, everyone can make it, ignoring, again, the fact that he's the exception and not the rule. And until he's the rule, then he can stop talking about systemic racism, Hostin said, reacting to his 2024 campaign announcement. Behar also argued that Scott doesn't understand racism in America. Well, he's a black man and you're a white lady. So sit down, Joy. He's one of these guys like Clarence Thomas, black Republicans who believe in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes. Yes. I could stop you there and be like, yes, that's exactly what they believe. And it works for them. And it can work for anyone who chooses to do the same because America is a great and awesome place. But none of these women believe that because she goes on. Rather than understanding the systemic racism that African Americans face in the country and other minorities, he doesn't get it. Neither does Clarence. That's why they're Republicans, she said. I remember her saying that. It was considered very shocking that she put it that way. She needs black people to be the victim. So does Sonny Hostin. So does Woody Goldberg. Tim Scott does not. In fact, he seems that it seems very much that he would prefer people Black people, white people, not be victims moving forward. And I think that's fantastic. And I hope that more people will follow his example. I'm listening to a, what's called a blitz from Dan Carlin, who does Hardcore History. He did a whole five-hour podcast podcast. About the history of slavery, it's called Human Capital. You guys should definitely look it up on whatever podcast platforms you use. If you don't already, uh, or if you're not already familiar with Dan Carlin's work, he's a fantastic historian. He makes history very um, reachable for the ordinary person. He really turns it into something interesting. And he he was told when he thought about starting to think about looking at maybe considering discussing the topic of slavery. People told him not to do it. They told him to stick to crowd-pleasing topics. This one's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a hot potato. You don't really want to engage with it. And I respect and admire Dan Carlin, but I really wish that, that he had paused then and asked himself why they said that. Because I happen to know for a fact that they said that because they need to maintain this understanding of the West as uniquely, unforgivably, irreparably, irredeemably evil when it comes specifically to the topic of slavery. They're lying. They need to maintain this facade and they've been lucky, or perhaps this is their own doing. They have been successful in that Americans don't seem to grasp history well enough to know that slavery was everywhere and it was for all time. Muslims imprisoned Muslims, Blacks imprisoned Blacks, all throughout Africa, all throughout the entire world. Asia was rife with it. White people enslaved other white people. People of every races enslaved people of every other race. It did not discriminate, but they need to push a racial ideology because this is their divisive rhetoric. It used to be the bourgeois versus whoever else the other classes were. My brain is gone, so forgive me. This used to be how communism pitched different groups against the other. Now they have race and they cannot allow people to understand... That slavery is not distinctive to white people. In fact, I will never stop emphasizing this enough. William Wilberforce was one of the men who ended slavery in Britain. Britain ended slavery shortly before the United States did. In fact, I believe it was the British Navy that patrolled the seas to help stop the slave trade outright shortly after that was passed. I need to get to that part in Dan Carlin's coverage of this historical, you know, like, this historical timeline. But my understanding is that the West ended slavery, but they cannot allow you to know that. Like, we know that, but we don't know that because they don't allow us to think that that's enough. They don't let us think that's good enough, which I have a huge problem with. Once you understand the scope of slavery, you have to stop and think they upended something that everyone across thousands of years thought was completely fine. I mean, completely fine. They had slavery in Egypt with the Israelites. They've had slavery throughout time immemorial since we've had civilization, more or less, since we came out of the caves. And they cannot allow us to recognize that America ended something that was ubiquitous everywhere, because that makes us look kind of darn heroic, doesn't it? They can't let us think that they can't let us think that we could actually be equal. And Andy and I were reflecting on what the best decade probably was to live in. We were saying like the 80s and 90s because that's where we felt the least amount of racial consciousness that's being pushed by the left because these are very malign influences pushing this. This is not organic and it's fueling people on the left to view black people as victims view white people as oppressors. It's pushing black people to view white people as oppressors. We never needed to be in this situation. We've been pushed by ideologues who cannot allow us to remember history and who cannot allow us to view the full scope of issues like slavery and recognize that the West has done incredible things on that front. That's evil. I'm sorry. I am never going to forgive that because it's a serious issue. I think that... One of the best ways to push back on this, aside from great the great sort, as I've been calling it, I don't think there's going to be a civil war. I think we're going to sort ourselves out until we end up with people who with whom we align on most things, right, and there we can entertain like a healthy spirited debate about xyz right stuff that we kind of disagree on a little bit like a married relationship where you agree on probably 80 percent of things but then there's still enough there to foster like a really hearty conversation for the next decades like andy and i drove out to uh we were taking the poor little dot went to the pet sitters she went to her old family for a few days so we can go out of town um and we just talked for like two and a half hours straight we didn't listen to a single podcast and listen to any music um, committedly because we have so much that we can discuss. We have so many different things that we can kind of unpack together and like foster our knowledge of. We've been listening to Dennis Prager together. That's been really fun too. And that's just so meaningful. And I think that people are going to find that when they live with people with whom they agree on probably like 75 to 80% of things, it's going to lead them toward a greater sense of peace, of understanding of one another, of kind of agreeing to disagree, of allowing other people to rub off their rough edges and kind of compromise with each other. I think that's how it's supposed to be. I think that's how America used to be before we got these deep cracks and these deep racist divisions coming from the left. I'm optimistic that once people start to move towards people with whom they agree more, they'll be happier and will be a more united country believe it or not it's going to be interesting to see what happens there because i think it's going to happen naturally but i'm not sure what the end destination will be and i'm not sure if we ever going to be actually be able to beat back these leftist attacks on things like childhood because that needs to be brought to heal and quickly because that is unacceptable and that that will that will actively undermine our entire country over the course of decades if we allow that to continue but Hopefully, 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 we are able to make that happen. And I am optimistic that once we get into those positions, we'll be able to call to heal big companies like Bud Light. We will push them to do the right things in ways that we've never had power to do before. So I don't think that the answer is civil war. I think the answer is living in areas with people you align with better ideologically. So feel free to disagree with me in the comments. I know that that is a very contentious point, kind of, but I think that it's something that I want peace. I want everyone to be happy. You know, I'd really like for everyone to just get along. In fact, I saw somebody comment the other day, I'm so tired of both the left and the right. um, When it comes to all this drag queen story hour or whatever, and these kids, can't we all just get along? no, no, no. Well, conservatives have finally found a hill worth dying on, and I could not be happier. I am very proud that they are actually pushing through with this, and I'm so glad they also recognize that they do have some power. They don't have institutional power, but they do have some power, and I'm very glad that they are now flexing that. So, speaking of flexing power, this is a very interesting article from The Federalist, whom I love and appreciate this is from John Daniel Davidson. This article is entitled, No Forgiveness for Pandemic Sins Until the Guilty Repent. Interesting take. I don't know if you guys remember back, I think, I let's say the very, very beginning of November, there was an article that came out talking about how we should all just forgive and forget and move along after the pandemic. We all did things we didn't want to have to do. It's fine now. We just need to move along. Um, and my conclusion basically was, I understand that the lady who actually wrote that article was fighting to keep schools open. Good for her, happy for her, grateful to her. That was the right thing to do. Her take is entirely wrong. You do not forgive someone who's not repentant, at least not on this level. Now, sometimes, sometimes I will add this personally. Sometimes you forgive people because it's the right thing to do for your own soul and you want to be the kind of person who's capable of forgiving and you can feel it dragging you down if you don't. Um, that's on a personal level. This is different and I think this article is correct. The people who abuse their power and impose tyranny during the pandemic will do it again if we don't hold them accountable. And I'm going to stop here and say something very, very unpopular. I have been seeing a lot of comments about how Ron DeSantis would never fire Anthony Fauci. And I want to stop every single one of those people and before they say another word, say, are you aware that Donald Trump gave Anthony Fauci a Medal of Recognition and Appreciation on January 19th, 2021? After the end of his tenure in office, Donald Trump was still Team Fauci. And the fact that he's been lauding Andrew Cuomo... And Gavin Newsom tells me that if he were given the same position with a similar pandemic, he would do it all again. That should disturb every single one of you guys, and it certainly deserves your thought and attention. Whatever you think of Trump, whatever you think of DeSantis, I really, really want you guys to remember that. Because what he's saying here is true. Donald Trump needs to be held accountable for what he did during the pandemic, It is true that we didn't know exactly what we were doing in 2020. Everybody gets a little leeway, even Florida locked down for a short time. If you'll recall, they did not stay shut down for long because Daniel Ulfelder, that ridiculous attorney, was on the beaches in Florida in, I want to say, early April, late March 2020 wearing his Grim Reaper outfit because DeSantis had opened the beaches again. And he was saying people are going to die. Everyone's going to die. And they were suing the state of Florida just a couple weeks into April after a March 15th shutdown. Remember, two weeks to slow the spread. A couple weeks into April, they were suing the state of Florida for reopening, not for closing. So, Everyone was misled at the start of the pandemic. Now, January 19th, 2021, every single person in the United States should have known better. And many of us certainly did. I recall being thoroughly red-pilled by that point because I think, was that after I'd had it? I remember getting it right. And I remember sitting in my apartment for like two weeks and I was like, I'm so bored. Can I please go back to work? And I was told, no, if you're testing positive, you cannot come back to work. And Luke especially did not want me to be anywhere near him if I had COVID, which is really interesting given his stance on the pandemic. I found it fascinating. But yeah, I remember thinking this is ridiculous. The only thing that happened to me was I lost my sense of taste and smell. Literally for one day, I had a runny nose and an upset stomach. And I was like, could this really be COVID? I texted a friend and they're like, yeah, actually that is one of the the symptoms. And I was like, oh crap, okay, I better take a test. I did. It was fine. then I was just sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting around. Poor Deb, he got so sick of me. Really ridiculous. But I knew then, I knew even before that, like I didn't go out because I didn't want to put people who are immunocompromised at risk because I knew that sometimes something that's not bad for you will be bad for someone else, right? Whatever, trying to be conscientious and thoughtful. But I knew then that this was not something that anyone healthy and young and in proper shape needed to worry about. So that was a tangent. Let's continue on. I just want to point out that it will happen again, unfortunately, if we put the same people in office that were in office then. Christianity Today published a curious piece by Paul Miller on Thursday calling for everyone to forgive each other for our supposed pandemic sins. He didn't exactly say who sinned, just that we got things wrong and some officials made mistakes in the early days. Things happened. Mistakes were made. It's time to move on. Miller's argument is basically a warmed-over, lightly Christianized version of the essay from Brown University economics professor Emily Oster, right, which I recall reading in early November, arguing that... The Atlantic last November arguing for a pandemic amnesty on account of how uncertain and complicated things were in the face of a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-century pandemic like oh, wait, crow, crow, crow. Oh my gosh, let me try again. In the face of a once-in-a-century pandemic like COVID, the ruling class did its best, okay? Oster's piece elicited well-deserved scorn from many on the right, including our own Joy Pullman, who noted that a genuine amnesty requires an admission of guilt And a commitment to repairing the wrong done. The absence of such an admission and commitment to change, says Pullman, is an indication that you're going to do it again and makes it impossible to rebuild trust. Of course, the people responsible for shutting down the economy, closing schools and churches, destroying countless businesses, and condemning the elderly to die alone in their hospital rooms are not at all sorry about what they did. In fact, very recently, Donald Trump was saying how proud he was of the vaccine, of Operation Warp Speed. He said he saved, quote, millions of lives with the vaccine. I am not letting him off the hook for this one, and neither should you. You should consider this very carefully when going into voting mindset 2024. To this day, they don't acknowledge any wrongdoing whatsoever. Certainly not Anthony Fauci. Yes, yes. Who, in an April interview with the New York Times, defiantly faulted the ordinary American for failing to listen to him, the self-proclaimed embodiment of science, the medal recipient of Donald Trump. The same people who needlessly imposed massive learning losses on school children or barred families from burying their dead, then foisted an ineffective vaccine on the public and tried to shame or coerce everyone into taking it regardless of their age or health status. Plenty of Americans, including those in the military and medical professions, were faced with a terrible choice of taking a shot they didn't trust or losing their careers and livelihoods. And again, I said it before, but I'll say it again. I understand why doctors wouldn't want to speak out against this. Doctors have been through like a decade of schooling by the time they finally get to practice. They have of student loan debt. They have a license that can easily be stripped from them by the state that gave it to them. The state gives, the state takes away. So it makes sense to me why they were so unwilling to not tread carefully. Be that as it may, I still think more of them should have spoken out. None of the people who did this are sorry about it. In fact, they're proud of it, and they will absolutely do it again the next chance they get. Here's the new director for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, Mandy Cohen, jokingly relating how she and her fellow health officials came up with the draconic mandates during COVID. This is from Michael Sanger, and I'm not going to play the video here because copyrights, etc. New CDC director Mandy Cohen recalls how she and her colleague came up with a COVID mandate during her time as North Carolina health director. She was like, are you going to let them have professional football? And I was like, no. And she's like, okay, neither are we. Let's look at this full tweet because I think there's more than one. No, it's just the one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely wild stuff. This is like a a high school girl consorting with her friends about what she should wear to the prom. And this is how they came up with it. And I argued with this at great length. I argued about this at great length with many of the people that I knew. People with whom I'm now no longer friends because of the depths of our disagreement over this stuff. So anytime I see something like this, I'm just like, here it is. This is what I was talking about. They were yanking our chain. They were pulling us, pulling us around. They were leading us down the primrose path. They were tyrants. They were petty, self-obsessed, narcissistic, power drunk people who pushed buttons just because they thought they could get away with it. Incredibly disturbing. And this is, this will happen again. They're correct. And I've been putting pressure on the right because I care deeply about the right getting things right. Okay. Okay. I've been on the right for my entire life. I'm not a 2016 conservative, okay? I have been on this beat since I was 11 years old. For 20 years, I've been harping on about abortion. I've been harping on about why it's important to get rid of it. I've been worried about the, the debt crisis. I've been worried about all of these things for my entire cognizant life, okay? So before the age of like 11, you're not really thinking super rationally or logically, I hit 11 and I was like, you know what? Feminism is really bad because it's shortening women's lives and we need to do something about it. And then I started to think about all this other stuff. It all fell into place and I've been more or less refining those views for the last 20 years, okay? I've been saying very similar things. The right needs to be held to account every bit as much as the left. And yes, we should all be teamed up against the left. We should not be infighting. But when someone comes in who says they're on our side, who is clearly not... After being given the opportunity to prove that they are, the time comes to ask what's really going on here? Who are they actually serving? Are they serving their own ego or are they serving the people? Draw your own conclusions. We've got time still before the 2024 election. I just don't want a repeat of 2020 period. Notice the phrase, let them. These people felt and still feel that the freedom to run your business, attend school, go to church, gather together with friends and family, all of these things are entirely contingent on whether Mandy Cohen and her colleagues let you. They are allowing you. These are not rights that are by given by God. These people do not answer to any God other than themselves. They're in charge. They have some minute portion of power and so help them they're going to use it. And use it, they did. And they ruined a lot of people's lives. And I am genuinely concerned about all the children who are now so incredibly set back in their education, they may never recover. In this context, arguing for forgiveness or amnesty is really just calling for a total lack of accountability from the people who did real lasting harm to the entire country. Just as amnesty requires admission of wrongdoing, so too does forgiveness require repentance. It also requires justice and accountability. But none of the very powerful people who made crucial and ruinous decisions during the pandemic have asked for forgiveness or even acknowledged their devastating failure. None of them have been held accountable. There has been no justice. Miller focuses much of his essay on the question of church closures, urging unnamed churchgoers to extend grace to one another. That's fine advice as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far in this debate since the main culprits here aren't the pastors and clergy who caved to public health orders to close their doors. They were wrong The cave, but the blame ultimately rests with the officials who issued those orders and who will issue them again the next time something like COVID comes along. Can't wait for Warp Speed 2.0. I don't know about you. It's worth noting, too, the unbelievable hypocrisy of a publication like Christianity Today running a piece like this. As some commentators noted, during the pandemic, Christianity Today was outspoken in pushing for mask and vaccine mandates, as well as school and business closures, and it shamed everyone who dissented as a bad Christian. I'm sure they did. Daily Wire reporter Megan Basham replied to CT's tweet of the article by saying, Sure, as soon as you all admit that you are now disqualified to hold any sort of church leadership or to speak with any sort of authority on anything of spiritual significance... Because in the moment of crisis, you chose to heap legalistic burdens on your brothers and sisters in order to retain an alliance with the influential and powerful. I really appreciate Megan because where I focus on the political, she focused on the religious and I really respect what she says. Glad she's a reporter at the Daily Wire. She also noted that evangelical leaders like Russell Moore partnered with the former director of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, using Christianity Today as a vehicle to push regime propaganda during the pandemic. My colleague Sean Davis put it more bluntly. You told people they were bad Christians and risked going to hell if they went to church, didn't wear masks, or refused a dead vaccine. Repent for what you did. Acknowledge the damage you inflicted on the churches and seek forgiveness. And then... until then shut up you little snakes he did not mince words i'm very happy to hear that i don't like when people tap dance around issues that doesn't get anything done with apologies to miller that is about that about sums it up no forgiveness without repentance and no forgetting what the ruling class did to this country ever i appreciate that article a lot i'm really glad they wrote that thank you federalists thank you john david john daniel davidson (laughs) And it's true, and I just want to remind, I just want to take this opportunity to remind everyone, even though this is coming from a religious perspective, I want to remind us that it can happen again if we put the wrong politicians in office again because we know we know that there's going to be another pandemic because this was just too easy for them. This was too great, right? They're not going to let it get by one more time, right? They're they're going to jump on it hard and they're going to be insanely tyrannical. And this time they might not ever let up. So they might use it to fundamentally tweak the nature of our country. That is something we cannot stand. That is something our country cannot stand. So thank you you guys for joining me this evening. I do appreciate it. Hopefully you bore with my rants. I know a lot of people feel very touchy and very protective about Trump. I am very personally of the opinion that you don't owe any politician your loyalty. Okay. They owe you their loyalty. They are your employees. You put them into place. We should be able to do performance reviews. we That's basically what midterms are, where we decide whether they're doing a good enough job. And people get entrenched in the tribal nature of politics. And we need to stay away from that. I want someone who pushes ideology that is going to help save the country, not push us down the primrose path that we are already walking. Really not something that we can run the risk of happening at this point. I, Like I said before, I just don't want a repeat of 2020 Biden versus Trump and then Trump loses because it is an indictment of him when it should be an indictment of Joe Biden. I want the election 2024 to be a stunning rebuke of Joe Biden. Not a rehash of 2020. Not a chance for the mainstream media to catch everybody up on Russiagate 2.0 whatever that might look like. That is not productive. That's not how we win, and that's not how we stop its stuff in the in tra- how we stop this stuff in its tracks. Now, somebody, I think her name was I can't remember her name, but she tweeted about how many different judges Joe Biden has put into place. He's put something like ninety seven judges into place, and something like five of those or two of those are white men, and that's a very very interesting thing to observe. I, yeah, here, this is Lauren Witzke. I'm not familiar with her, but this will be our last note. Lauren says, a study reveals how Biden has appointed 97 federal judges. Five of the 97 were white men. Two of those white male judges were gay. They are completely rebuilding the U.S. judiciary with people who hate us. And I said, correct. This is why we have to win in 2024 a repeat of 2020 will be just that a repeat of 2020 it will not result in a win now i made the correct prediction in 20 uh t- back in november 2022 right when i predicted there wouldn't be a red wave and i said i feel like the the fire has died we have really lost a lot of the wind out of our sails i don't see us pulling out huge overwhelming victories and I was correct. Unfortunately, that doesn't make me happy. I just want you guys to know that I have a feeling for this kind of thing. And I am watching this 24 seven. And it's very, very important to me. Like I have a future. Now I feel like I have a really close stake to the future and I want to do right by them. And by them, I mean the little they, them that I'm currently gestating, which is delightful. Let me tell you, not at all exhausting. But yeah, I really want to make the future a better place. I really want to push politics into the right direction. We really need someone who actually cares about conservative principles. And I will leave that to you guys because I just don't see a repeat of 2020 doing anyone any good. So I'll leave on that note. That's just been at the top of my mind lately. It's so troubling to me. I really want to see an actual victory and actual success, so... Let's see how we can do. I will see you all tomorrow. I'm not sure how or what time I'll record tomorrow, but I will be recording something of some length, maybe even something in the airport in Philadelphia where we have a layover. That might be where we spend the 7 p.m. hour, but we'll see what happens. Until then, I will see you next time. Remember, stay safe, stay well, stay out of target. Bye, guys.